0: Let's pray now as we turn our attention to God's Word this morning, Hebrews chapter 6. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are thankful that You are the same God that sits enthroned over all of heaven and earth, that You are the same God here in East Lansing that also sits enthroned over Blantyre, Malawi. And we are thankful that You give the same Word, that the same everlasting eternal Word is effectual here, it's effectual across the globe. We pray this morning that as we sit in this place and stand in this place, that we would find ourselves under the power of your Word, that you would speak to us and minister to our souls, the power of your Spirit, for our good and for your glory. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. If you're using a Pew Bible, it's there on page 1004. 1004, Hebrews 6, verses 9 through 12. This is the holy, inerrant, sufficient word of God. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you've shown for His name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may remember that two weeks ago that we started in Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 6, the writer of Hebrews, is giving this very stark warning to the church that he is writing to, that he is a preacher to and a pastor to. It is, we could say, maybe the starkest warning in all of the Scriptures, and he's a good pastor. He knows that he is warning them about the sin of apostasy, about falling away from Christ. And he knows as a good pastor, as every good pastor knows, that when you talk about this sin to a congregation, there are many Christians, Christians in that congregation that will begin to fear for their own salvation. Have they committed the sin of apostasy? Have they fallen away from the living Christ? And so he addresses them as a good pastor right on the heels of the stark warning. In verse 9, he says this, Though we speak in this way, speaking about the warning, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation.
1: He wants them to
0: keep persevering in Christ, but he doesn't want them to languish in Christ with a lack of assurance of their salvation. That's his concern in our verses. For them... He says he is sure of better things. Why? Why is he sure of better things for them? Because of what he's seen in them. Because of what he's seen in them. He notes their character, both past and their character in the present. Assurance of salvation is a struggle for many Christians. No doubt in this room this morning there are a number of you, maybe many of you that are struggling with assurance of salvation. So this morning we get to look at this together from these verses, and we'll spend a little time on this together this morning. It gives us a wonderful opportunity to do that. And the first thing I want to do is our first point this morning that the writer of Hebrews is making to this congregation is that past faithfulness, encourages present confidence. Past faithfulness encourages present confidence. He begins by noting their character in the past. Listen, character follows faith. Never perfectly. We're never what we desire to be. We're never what we think we should be. But where there is a lack of fruit in our lives, there's a lack of life. But where there is fruit that speaks of life. It's evidence of life.
1: And he knows what he's seen in
0: their lives. If you go to verse 10 there, he says, your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints. That's what he's seen. He's no doubt alluding to the beginning of the church. Wherever this church is that the writer of Hebrews is writing to, he's speaking about the beginning of that church. So if you turn over to chapter 10, chapter 10, verses 32 through 34, he addresses this, what they were like at the beginning of the church. He says this. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, that is, they come to saving faith, when you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession An abiding one. He looks back at their past and he says, look, you willingly suffered for the sake of Christ. You willingly served and loved others in the body of Christ, often at great cost, at great expense to you. And he's saying, your past faithfulness encourages present confidence. I'm confident because I've seen what you've done. I've seen who you were. He began this passage with noting, quote, God is not unjust in overlooking such work. God's not unjust. So often the work that you and I do in the body of Christ and for the glory of Christ, it goes unnoticed. In fact, that's often the best and the most encouraging work in the body of Christ, that which goes unnoticed, that service. Some of you excel at that, at
1: being unnoticed.
0: Uh, I was just talking with an elder this past week about this and saying uh, of an individual, one of you in this congregation, saying, ah, this person, they're not up front. People don't know everything they do. But man, I have a conversation over here and their name bubbles up. They're serving this person. And I'm having a conversation with another person over here and their name bubbles up that they're serving this person. just serving faithfully behind the scenes. I was saying to another elder this past week about a couple here in this congregation, a young couple that I said, they're just sneakily effective.
1: You don't see them, but they're just effective in what they do. They've had all kinds of people over to their home
0: and have exercised the gift of hospitality, and there's all kinds of People in this congregation that were on the fringes that felt like, oh, they didn't belong, and they've had them over, and now they know the love of the saints. So many of you that do that, it just doesn't get recognized. But the writer is noting God recognizes, God sees, and God rewards. He does not, as the writer says, quote, overlook your work and your love. God sees all things. He neither slumbers nor sleeps. As the psalmist says, He sees all evil, and He sees all good. He hears every prayer. He sees every self-giving act. He notices every injustice that you suffer for the sake of serving others. He knows every dollar you have passed along. Our labors for His people are never for naught. And He rewards. Now the writer is not saying that we're saved, nor is he saying that our assurance is founded upon our works. You don't have ultimately assurance of your salvation because of your works, and you surely do not have salvation because of your works. That would upset the entire tenor of Scripture. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone. His point is simply what we have often said in this pulpit, that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone, but that faith never remains alone. When He works in us, He then works through us. They go hand in hand. And so, our past faithfulness should be one of the things that testify to us that give us present confidence of our salvation. So you can look back, and in your life you can see, as it were, all of these different Ebenezer stones throughout your life, and you say, oh, the Lord worked through me there, and He worked through me there, and He worked through me there. It was His work through me, and that's an Ebenezer stone in my past to testify to me that indeed I'm His. Past faithfulness encourages present confidence. Our second point, present faithfulness encourages present confidence. Present faithfulness encourages present confidence. He speaks about their past faithfulness, and then he underlies it with just that little clause, as you still do. He's not simply pointing to what they have been. He's now pointing to what they are now. Character now matters. The Christian fights, continually fights against resting on their laurels. And one of the reasons we fight is to have, as the author says, quote, the full assurance of hope. Assurance is often a battle. It's often a battle in the Christian's life. And one of the ways to be assured of our salvation is to continue to press
1: into Christ
0: and to continue to press up into Christ. This is one of my great prayers for all of you in this room. That as long as we are here, that we all recognize that we're here with purpose to glorify God and to do good to His people, to serve His people. Or as we talk about the three pillars of URC, we spoke about the very beginning of the year, we exist to proclaim Christ and we exist to grow in Christ. And part of the way that you and I grow in Christ and part of the way that we are proclaiming Christ is that we are serving one another in love. Jesus said, they will know you by your love for one another. And one of the great gifts of loving the body of Christ, of serving the body of Christ, is that my personal assurance of salvation grows. Mine, as I serve you. Yours, as you serve me. Present faithfulness encourages present confidence. I've said to so many of you during these last few turbulent years uh, that our society has gone through, I've said, I think that I'm pretty convinced that the great apologetic in our age, not apology, apologetic, the great argument, the great apologetic in our age will be that we continue to gather together and love one another. We live in a world and in a society that is doing everything it can to make us oppose one another, create stark contrasts between one another, trying to get you to hate the person that's different from you. We even have a word for it now, you're canceled. If you disagree with me about something, I have no tolerance for you. to cancel your neighbor over politics, over COVID, over masks, or defund the police, over reparations, over whatever the topic de jure of the day is. And our great apologetic is that we will continue to gather with one another to worship and glorify Christ. And when we gather, we shower one another with service and love. And that will be strange to the world. In fact, it will often be offensive to the world. What is wrong with those people? They think Jesus is more important than? Yes. They will know you by your love for one another. Paul rejoiced in Philippians that the gospel even spread to the house of Caesar, his enemy. Caesar's house? Yes, he did. Peter will rejoice that the gospel has gone out to the dirty Gentiles.
1: He would sit down and eat with dirty Gentiles. Yes, he did. Jesus would sit with tax collectors, tax collectors. Yes, he did. Philemon will worship in the same church as his slave, Onesimus, who is below him. Yes, he did. Onesimus will worship in the same church as his slave master, Philemon. Yes, he did. He'll know you by your love for one another.
0: But here's the other part of the equation. Even as it's the great apologetic to our culture, it's the great apologetic to our own souls. To our own souls. It's not easy to love others. It's not easy to love those in the body of Christ I disagree with. I have nothing in common with you except Christ.
1: And yet I love that brother or I love that sister that I disagree with them about everything about. But I love them and want to serve them. That can only be grace. It's a great apologetic to our own souls.
0: that We love one another and serve one another. Present faithfulness encourages present confidence. Our third point. Present and future earnestness will encourage confidence. Present and future earnestness will encourage confidence. Right, Hebrews' desire is that they, verse 11, show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. He tells them not to be sluggish. This is the exact same word that he used in chapter 5, verse 11, where he said that they were dull of hearing. That is, lazy, slothful. He's saying do not be lazy and slothful. Laziness is the great enemy of fruitfulness. Sluggishness is the great enemy of righteousness. You remember that parable of the talents that Jesus tells where there's a master that gives a different number of talents to his servants and there's a one servant that gets the one talent. And that servant will bury that talent into the ground and then the master returns and he doesn't get a return on it. And he says to that, that, that servant of his, he says, you wicked and slothful servant. And he takes that one talent from him. People Hebrews saying, don't be slothful like that. You're to endeavor. You're to press in. As Christians, we believe our salvation is ultimately secured by Christ. It is His death. It's His burial. It's His resurrection that secures our salvation. Our salvation is firmly rooted in Him. We rest in that. And yet, we don't rest on our laurels. We keep pressing in. We keep sweating for His glory and the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We endeavor. What I want to do is talk a little bit about assurance together. Okay? Think about this together as we're endeavoring and thinking about assurance of salvation this morning together because it's such a struggle for so many. Uh, Assurance, I have often thought, it it is one of the greatest of blessings that we have in the Christian faith. It's not something the Lord had to give to us. Look, He didn't have to give us salvation, but He does. But then He, he puts the cherry on top by saying, ah, oh, I give you the assurance of your salvation as well. You don't have to stir and, am I actually saved? Am I in jeopardy someday? Could He outflank me? Somehow could I get robbed or, or stolen or taken away from the hand of Christ? no. And he gives you this great assurance. It's one of the great and rightful inheritances of the children of God. And the scriptures clearly articulate a child of God may and should possess a true sense of inner peace and confidence regarding their own personal salvation. I want you to take you very back to the beginning when you think about faith. Understand this, that faith is trusting in Christ as Savior. So the seeds of assurance are inherently within faith itself. They're already there. But here's the reality. Though the gift of assurance is the inheritance of God's people, it's reached out to you, it's offered to you, And it regularly accompanies saving faith. Many of us, though we are Christians, find it elusive or even non-existent in our Christian experience. As John Calvin said, We cannot imagine any certainty that is not tinged with doubt, or any assurance that is not assailed by some anxiety. Believers are in perpetual conflict with their own unbelief. Some of us have or are struggling with assurance in monumental ways. It was uh, when I came to Saving Faith in college. The first major battle I had in Christian life was forgiving some adults that had done great injury to me as a child. The second was battling doubt and assurance of my salvation. For five or six years, I was, I was undone. Uh, I'm, I'm an introspective person. I, I look too often within and too often am testing the fruits of my life. I wish someone had told me that wonderful Robert Murray McShane quote early on in my Christian life. For every one look at yourself, take ten looks to Christ. That's a good, good word. You look to Christ before you look to yourself. If I was racked with doubt, I could turn myself inside out if I thought about anything for any period of time. I used to tell people, if you give me long enough, just give me long enough to think about it, and I'll doubt whether I love my own mama. I'll do it. I can think about it long enough, and I can get there. And I was like that about Christ. It was, doubt was a constant killjoy in my life. Some of you know this. Some of you live this. One of the best chapters, I think, in the Westminster Confession of Faith, maybe my favorite chapter in the entire confession is chapter 18 on the assurance of salvation. Take a moment this afternoon. would encourage you to you can find it online. Those of you that don't have it tucked under your pillow at night like I do, uh, you can find it online. Wonderful chapter 18 would encourage you to read it. It is so wonderfully pastoral and theologically rich. And in that chapter, they helpfully address the underlying error when it says this. Quote, infallible assurance does not so belong to the essence of faith, but that a true believer may wait long and conflict with many difficulties before he be a partaker of it. This is what the Westminster Assembly was saying. There is not an equal sign between salvation and assurance of salvation. No equal sign. That is, you can have salvation. You can be saved in Christ. You can be united
1: to Christ. You can have faith in Christ. You can be everlastingly His and have no sense of it. That's a possibility. They're not so inextricably linked that the one necessarily follows
0: the other. And... The Christian scriptures speak to this stark reality. Our own Christian experience, many of us in this room, speaks to that reality. Think about it biblically, where that man in Mark 9, the Father, will come forward and he'll say to the Lord Jesus Christ, he'll say, I believe.
1: Help me in my unbelief. What's he saying? He believes, but he knows that it's weak, it's frail, it's filled with doubt. His faith is racked with doubt.
0: It should make your soul rattle with delight the response that Jesus gives to him. He recognizes it as faith. And He heals His Son. An ounce of saving faith is saving faith. It is not the degree. It's not the quality. It's not the abundance of our faith that saves. It's the object of our faith that saves. Jesus. That's what saves. For many, the struggle with assurance is not due to being outside of Christ.
1: In fact, it's evidence of your being in Christ
0: that you're struggling with assurance. Too many think that the Christian life is absent of doubt, it's absent of struggle, it's absent of fight, but the Scriptures paint a completely different view of the Christian faith. Paul says to Timothy this, Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made a good confession in the presence of many witnesses. First Timothy 6.12 The Christian life is seldom one of these. It's compared to a marathon race, Hebrews 12. A fight, First Timothy 6. Warfare, Ephesians 6. It involves struggle, Colossians 1.29. Suffering, Philippians 1.29. Striving, Philippians 1.27. And discipline, 1 Corinthians 9.27. As Calvin said, he who's struggling with his own weakness presses toward faith in his moments of anxiety is already in large part victorious.
1: We press more and more into
0: Christ as we are doubting and struggling with our faith. And that pressing in despite our doubt or even because of our doubt is a sign that we already have the victory. Show earnestness, the writer of Hebrews says. The Christian life is a life of fighting.
1: Why? Why? because we have adversaries that want to assault your faith on every side you have satan and you have sin and you
0: have your flesh that want to rob you of the joy of your salvation and so it's a continual fight so you keep showing earnestness the writer of Hebrews is saying think about this this week about this text and thinking, thinking back over two decades of pastoral ministry and thinking, if I had to do a ranking of the main reasons that people come to me and say, ah, oh, pastor, can we get together to talk through an issue in my life? And of literally the hundreds upon hundreds, maybe thousands of people I've sat with face-to-face, this has got to be in the top three of why people come struggling with assurance of their salvation. And it's almost without fail, the man or woman will sit across from me and their eyes will be filled with tears and there will be something along the lines of they'll say, I've continually struggled with this sin, I continue to wrestle with it, and they are not what they desire to be in Christ. They are not what they think they should be in Christ at this point. They don't find the joy and delight in Christ that they seemingly see in others. And they wonder whether they are actually saved. They don't do what they want to do and do what they don't want to do. And if that's the case, well, you're in good company. Paul in Romans will say, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. The Apostle John, in speaking to his flock as he is writing to them, will say there in 1 John 3, 2, that look, your children of God, even now you are not what you shall be. He says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. My friends, struggle. Struggle in the Christian life rather than being a sign of unbelief is often the greatest sign of true belief. The reality is that only individuals engaged in the fight are those on the other side of the battle lines from Satan and sin and the flesh. The fact that you want more grace speaks of you already having grace. Keep showing earnestness. Present and future earnestness will encourage confidence. That chapter in the Westminster Confession is so very helpful. One of the things that it does is it notes that you and I will have different experiences than some Christians will immediately upon salvation, that they will have a full assurance and it doesn't waver at all. My wife is one of those. She prayed a prayer when she was under a tree at four years old and she's never doubted a day in her life that she's saved. And
1: then there's me.
0: And some of you will have great assurance and then you will go through periods where you have little assurance. And it will wax and it will wane. Different degrees. But I want you to know this. It's a gift. It's a gift that is yours if you're in Christ. It's, it's extending His hands out to you and says it's,
1: it's yours. Just take
0: it. We're to labor for it. The writer of Hebrews is concerned that they show earnestness in acquiring it. Earnestness is often the way to embrace it. He's encouraging them. He's confident in their salvation, but He wants them to show earnestness that they may know the full assurance of hope that is theirs in Christ. I want all of you to know the full assurance of
1: hope that is yours in Christ if you are in Christ. Be earnest.
0: He closes our passage with the example Example of those who have gone before us. He says, verse 12, be imitators. Imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That is, he's saying keep running. And he's noting that, look, you're not the first to be involved in this. They have finished the race. There are men and women that are ahead of you and they finished the race and they set before you an example. And now they have all the promises. And so he's saying to these Hebrew congregants of his, he's saying, look, have men and women that are set out before you that
1: are just a little further ahead of you in the faith
0: that you can look to and you can see their love for the saints and you can see their patience. You can see their service and it just encourages you to keep pressing forward. You should have dead people that do this for you that are now living. You should have living people that do this for you. I think about it biblically. There are biblical examples for me, heroes, saints, that I often think about David and his repentance or Peter and his zeal or Paul and his steadfastness or John and his growth in the Christian life. Or I think of others who have died and gone on to be with the Lord. I think of the courage of Martin Luther or the heart of David Brainerd or the love of John Newton or the faithfulness of Polycarp. They continued in the faith. They were earnest. They kept pressing in and they finished the race. And now all of that hope that they looked forward to, it's all been realized for them.
1: They've received all the promises. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, be earnest. (laughs) Keep pressing in. Keep at it.
0: Isn't it beautiful that what he is saying is that you and I, as we serve one another in the body of Christ, we're loving one another, we're serving one another, but what he's pointing out is that we're also the recipients of love, the rest of the saints. They set an example for us. And their lives inform our lives. We are God's people. We. And one of the things he has done is he's given us one another. Help one another finish the race. You're not the first to keep clinging to Christ in this world, keep struggling in faith, keep being patient, keep pressing into that assured hope that is yours in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful this morning that You are a God of so great a salvation. Not only that You have gifted us salvation, but You have gifted us the assurance of salvation. You've gifted us not only the assurance of salvation, but that you've gifted us brothers and sisters to walk alongside of them in this life to serve, to love, and to be served and loved by. Pray for each of us in this room that we would know this glorious Savior. We find that we are united together as brothers and sisters, that we see ourselves as your people. And that we are known by our love for one another. I pray that that would be true of us as we press into this eternal hope that we have been given. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.